The spirit of performance is what defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. It's 1975. Sharon Jewell is 15 years old, and she's at the Sheraton Park Hotel in Washington, D.C. Her family had driven up from Little Rock, Arkansas, for the NAACP convention. They go every year. And every year, Sharon performs in the talent show. Today, she's walking down the hotel hallway, looking for a place to practice her dance routine. And there were some guys there, and uh, three guys that I knew from Virginia, and they were doing martial arts in the hallway of the hotel. And so I saw them doing the martial arts and I walked over and said something critical about them not spotting when they turn. Even though Sharon didn't do martial arts yet, something about this movement that they were doing looked familiar. And in her opinion, these guys were doing it all wrong. When you turn as a ballet dancer, you want to spot. So you want to make your head's going to get to uh, it's going to finish the circular move in the turn before your body does. And so I mentioned that their kick was going to not be on, on point. They said, what do I know? And I said, I bet you I can do that better than you guys. And they said, no, you can't. And so we made a bet that we would see each other the next year at the convention and we would take up each other's art form. Sharon takes challenges very seriously. So when she gets home, she figures out how to win this one. So I started taking uh, martial arts at the Dunbar Community Center in Little Rock, Arkansas for $20 a year. Practice makes perfect. So when Sharon showed up at the NAACP convention the next year, she was ready. And when she found the boys that she had challenged, she found out that they had given up dance after a couple of weeks. She won. And that's kind of where it starts for Sharon this foray into something new, where she has to find a way to win, it carries her all the way to the Olympics. For Sharon, winning is everything, at least on the outside. But what Sharon is really about is finding a way to win. It's almost like a motto in her family. So my father was always pushing us to, to be the best, to be the first, or to do it longer or better than anybody else. I'm Kareem Maddox, and this is The Greatness. As you might know, I'm a professional three-on-three basketball player, and I think about details a lot. Things like the last finger a ball should touch as it leaves my hand, or the amount of spin on a bounce pass, or even how many dribbles I should take before I shoot a free throw. And it's because all these little things are really important. They all add up to the end product, which is a win or a loss. If you wanna master a sport, then you have to master the details. Those are what make you great. And that's why Sharon thrives. She knew details were the secret to winning. So she learned early on to scrutinize them, both on the mat and in life. After she won the bet at the convention, Sharon went back to Little Rock and kept taking those lessons and learning more about Taekwondo. Taekwondo is a fascinating way to fight because kicks are the most valuable attacks. And when the fighters square up, 
they're looking to score points fast. The fastest way? Spinning kick to their opponent's head. It's worth the most points. And the more force, the better. Since Sharon was already a runner and a dancer, her kicks were strong and fast to begin with. Competitions take place within an eight square meter mat. And in Sharon's day, each match went three rounds of three minutes. A round starts with the two athletes facing each other, with a referee in between them. The athletes wear protective helmets and padding over this loose-fitting white outfit called a dobok. They bow to each other before the match. Courtesy is a tenant of Taekwondo. And then they put their arms up and jump into a fighter's stance. And once the referee tells them to start, they begin. The face is off limits, so are kicks below the waist and to the knee. But besides that, things can get pretty brutal. Points are awarded based on how hard a fighter kicks or punches. The referees play a big part in the fight. They score it between rounds, and until they do, it's hard for a layman watching to know which punches and kicks will be scored. Back in Sharon's day, points were more subjective and relied more on judges' perceptions. She knew she had to kick hard to get the judges' attention. It was called trembling shock, which is basically I have to hit you hard enough for your body to move or be rattled so that so that a judge could visually see your body move and be shaken. Sometimes you can literally feel that person's body kind of envelop your foot. So it's almost like it caves in on your foot. You can feel that with a kick. You can also feel that with a punch to the body where the body kind of like closes in on the punch before you retract your hand. That was the kind of visual evidence that she wanted to present so she could rack up enough points to win. Kick to the body, one point. Kick to the face, one point. Punch to the body, one point. The fighter with the most points at the end of three rounds is the winner. Or if there's a knockout. A knockout feels phenomenal. (laughs) Sharon loves knockouts. It's the most decisive way to end a fight. But when she was just starting out, Sharon had to learn about self-control first. She learned that at her first competition, about a year after she took up Taekwondo. It was at this old community center gym in her neighborhood. Wood paneling, mats thrown over the basketball court, And on this hot, sweaty summer day at Sharon's first competition, she started to feel like she was getting cheated. And uh, she kept complaining to the referee that I was kicking her low. And I said, I'm not kicking her low. And so the referee kind of pointed to me and said, you know, no talking back. And I turned to my instructor and I kind of looked at him like, you know, she's not telling the truth. You know, I'm kicking to her body. And so he tapped his hand on his cheek, which signaled me to say, go higher, kick higher. So I kicked her in the face and I looked at her and I said, is that high enough for you? And the referee said, you're out of here and disqualified me. So my very first tournament, I was disqualified. And that was my last tournament I ever got disqualified from because I was so I was so disheartened because I didn't get a medal. I didn't get a trophy. And so from that point, I vowed that I would never go to any competition 
and not come back with either first place, second place, or third place trophy. It wasn't just the trophies though. Teenage Sharon was embarrassed. She had let her temper get the better of her, but she was taught to be more strategic when things were unfair. She came from a family of civil rights activists. Her father, Jerry Jewell, was the first black member of the Arkansas State Senate. My father didn't sit us down and say, you have to do this, this, and this. We saw my father and my mother do this every single day. So it was kind of like part of my DNA to, to, to not take less than what I thought I was worthy of. So all of that was part of, this is what you should do. You know, you have this ability, you should speak up, this is what you should do. Uh, there's a school uh, near our house and it's a uh, all white elementary school. Oh, we need to integrate that school. So he would, he took my oldest brother and said, okay, you're integrating the, the school. She and her siblings were taught to fight for themselves, but they also learned how to fight. And growing up in Arkansas in the 60s and 70s, there was a lot of fighting being done. It's just the world she grew up in, with these strong principles that carried over into the rest of her life. And sports was just another avenue for you to practice the integrity and the ethics that I had learned in other avenues from my parents. In addition to her budding Taekwondo practice, Sharon was really good at track. She was a hurdler, and sports were a way to learn ethics and character, yes, but they were also a way to pay for college. There was never a, a conversation about, well, what do you want to do in life? It wasn't a question that we weren't going to go to college. The question was, was where and who's paying for it? Howard University ended up paying for it. They offered Sharon a track and field scholarship. And when she got there, she remembered her promise to never come back from a competition without a trophy. The problem was that in hurdles, that became really tough for Sharon at Howard. I'm a good hurdler, but I'm not a world-class sprinter. <laughs> so I, I won um, a couple of races, but I did not have world-class sprinting speed. When Sharon's mind wandered at track practice, she thought of the other sport she loved, Taekwondo. She knew that Howard actually had a pretty good Taekwondo program, but understandably, her track coach didn't want her kicking people and getting kicked. It was just too great a risk of injury. So after practice each day, Sharon started waiting until everyone left the locker room. That's when she would slip on her dobok and sneak over to Taekwondo practice. I would kind of come out of the, the girls' locker room and go through the weight room and the, the uh, Taekwondo room was in the back. The last thing you want is for someone to see you going instead of out of the gym to the cafeteria, turning the corner and going back to the weight room and then going into the back room where the judo program was, was also the, the mat for the Taekwondo program. Sharon was coming to the Taekwondo club for kicks, no pun intended. But soon, that was gonna change. She quickly realized that this Taekwondo program was no joke. In fact, it was probably the best in the country. Thanks to the guy in charge, Dr. Dong Ja Yong. Dr. Yong was from Korea. And when he came to America in the 1960s, his goal was to spread the gospel of Taekwondo as far as he could, which as it turns out, was pretty far. 
He had turned Howard into a Taekwondo powerhouse, and when Sharon arrived, he was in the middle of his quest to get Taekwondo certified as an Olympic sport. He was the president of the U.S. Taekwondo Union. He wrote its constitution and rules for competition, and he traveled around the world helping start national programs. He even spoke to Congress to get support for the sport. And all that while he wasn't coaching his own athletes. I thought he was an excellent coach. He knew how to pull the best out of the athletes from a strategic standpoint. Case in point, by the time Sharon got to Howard, she had already earned a blue belt. In Taekwondo, there's a colored belt system. So beginners start with the white belts and work their way all the way up to black belts. Blue belts are about halfway through. So Sharon was somewhat experienced. And so he said, if I wanted to join the Taekwondo club, I would have to start all over again because he didn't know my instructor, which I didn't understand. And then I said, well, that's okay. I'll, I'll prove to him that I'm worthy of where I'm at. And so even though I started as a white belt all over again, I think in less than three months, I was back up to blue belt and then moving toward black belt. Dr. Young saw that Sharon was driven by the need to succeed. But there was also a lesson in making her start from the beginning. If you want to be really good, learn to do things my way. Details matter. And training under Dr. Young, Sharon did start to get really good. She learned how to create advantages and how to find quick ways to score a point. For example, she spent one entire training camp fighting other athletes using only her non-dominant hand. And when I get into competition, I can switch to my left side. So now you don't know which side is dominant. Most people aren't going to train as hard on their non-dominant side. But Sharon would. If she could confuse an opponent even for a second, it would give her an opening to kick and score a point. And every point mattered. She found that if she focused in on details, tiny ones, she could create more and more advantages good for a few more points. So she studied her opponents. So you're writing little notations. What's their favorite kick? What do they like to do? So I fought um, a young lady one time who had a long ponytail and she would flip her ponytail twice and then she'd throw a kick. So I knew after one, boom, I'm scoring. Cause she, she would never kick until she flipped it twice or Sometimes um, I would pretend like I was tired and I'd bend over and breathe hard. And as soon as the athlete comes in, I just would pounce on them. So little fight, fighting strategies, little things like that. There's this technique in Taekwondo called the key hop. It's the yell that athletes do when they're performing moves. And it's meant to reflect a gathering of a person's key, their energy, from deep inside their bodies. So one night before a competition, Sharon knows she's going to fight this athlete that she's fought against before, and then she's nervous. Her mom takes her out to an Italian place for dinner. And I ordered a plate of garlic bread. <laughs> so the next day, again, I'm fighting in the finals. This young lady, I know her well. She knows me well. But she doesn't know that I had a plate of garlic bread the night before. They begin the bout, 
And Sharon gathers all her energy from deep inside for her key hop. And I just opened up my mouth and I yelled right in her face as loud as I possibly could. And her key, all that garlic breath, hit her opponent hard. And as soon as I saw her flinch and drop her arms, I scored on her. But I said, okay, whatever it takes, you gotta have that little edge, you gotta be creative. When the competition was over, the first thing I did was go get um, toothbrush and toothpaste and go brush my teeth. <laughs> Anything for the point. And Sharon took pride in finding ways to win. She wanted to show that she was relentless and she wanted to outcompete everyone. So I'm not going into the ring to kill someone or to permanently maim them. I'm going in to execute what I've learned to a level that I think excels and to show that I'm the better athlete at that moment in time. And she did that over and over and over again. Remember that promise she made to herself to never come back without a medal? In Taekwondo, she kept that promise. Every single state, every single local, every single invitational, um, national, regional, Pan-American, I always took first, second, or third. And just as Sharon thought that she had won just about every medal there was to win, a new competition came around, the biggest one of all, the Olympics. But Sharon was gonna have to fight to get there. Hi, my name's Ben Lewis, host of the new series, Art Bust, scandalous stories of the art world. I'll explore some of the most shocking art crimes and biggest scandals. I know it's a cliche, but it's a cliche because it's true. There's no honor among thieves. I would like the European and Western countries, including the United States, to recognize their crimes. It's about murder in the name of art. Tune in to Art Bust, scandalous stories of the art world, an Antica and USG audio production. Available wherever you get your podcasts. I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and a broom. A performance-enhancing broom. My name is John Cullen. I'm a comedian, podcaster, and for 20 years, I was a semi-professional curler. And I want to tell you the story about how a single broom almost imploded the 500-year-old sport of curling. We felt like we were bringing a knife to a gunfight. It's the story of a superstar and his fall from grace. Oh, I was being dragged through the mud. It's the story of two brother entrepreneurs with a dream. <laughs> I said, that's great news. It's a story of intrigue. I still don't understand why we want to keep his name secret. The full story has never been told, so I'm going to tell it. Broomgate, how a broom almost killed curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. To listen to Broomgate, search for Broomgate in your favorite podcast app. That's all one word, Broomgate. When the IOC announced that Taekwondo would be on the program in the 1988 Olympics, Sharon was ready. Her coach, Dr. Yang, was instrumental in getting Taekwondo in the games. And now his program was primed to qualify, especially the women's team. We're meddling in world championships. We're getting medals at Pan American Championships, World Cup, International Invitations. 
The Olympics was a no-brainer for Sharon. Of course she would be there. But then she heard the news. At first they were saying only men and the women would wait. To Sharon, this was ridiculous. But she saw that it had happened before with another martial art. Men's judo became an Olympic sport in 1964. But it was 24 years before women were allowed to compete. 24 years. So Sharon said, not so fast. I said, well, that's not going to work because I'll be too old to compete by then. (laughs) So we have to get the women in at the same time as the men. Our argument was, why would you leave the U.S. women team at home when they have the ability to medal? You know, if you want more medals, you might want to take the women since they get double what the men get. Oh, that's a good idea. (laughs) Sharon, her team, and Dr. Young made their case to the powers that be at home in the U.S. So who's going to be the one to tell your female athlete you can't go? What would be the reason? Because you're female? Well, you can't say that. (laughs) It was an easy enough case to make at home. Of course the U.S. wanted more chances to medal. But if she was going to get her chance to go to the Olympics, then Sharon was going to have to take her fight further. Sports that enter the Olympics need to be played all over the world. And the problem that women's Taekwondo was having was that not enough women from not enough places were competing at a high enough level. So Sharon started to look for ways to change that. At international competitions, she would lobby other countries to just bring more women. So just a friendly walk over to this country or that country and say, hey, where's your women's representation? And they may say, oh, we don't have a women's team or they're not that good. It didn't matter. One point at a time, just one new athlete from one new country would help make the case to the IOC. We were like, just bring one. Just bring one female so we can say that this country has female representation. They also had Dr. Young on their side. And he knew his women fighters were good and deserved the chance at the Olympics. So he fought with them. He didn't complain about what was wrong, but strategized to fix it, to 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 negotiate, to go around. He had the charisma, and he had the political know-how and savvy. Between Dr. Young's savvy and the work on the ground of Sharon and his other athletes, they got the job done. By the time they had traveled the world rallying support, adding just one athlete at a time, women were going to be included in Taekwondo in the 1988 Olympics. So it reminded me a little bit of my upbringing and what my parents and others in the community in Arkansas had instilled in me. Sharon qualified for the games. So did Lynette Love and Deborah Holloway, two other women that Dr. Young trained at Howard. Not only would they represent the United States at the Olympics for a new sport, but they'd be doing it on that sport's home turf in Korea. In classic style, Sharon went in ready to claim the gold medal. The women's Taekwondo world was still small, So Sharon had a good idea as to who she was gonna have to beat at the Olympics. She knew her biggest competition came down to three other athletes. There was a young lady in Canada. There was a young lady from the Netherlands. 
and there was the young lady from Korea and myself. They were all close in skill, so it wasn't going to be easy. The gold medal might just come down to who was having a better day. Taekwondo is Korea's national martial art. So in 1988, when the Olympics started, a lot of eyes descended on this particular event. It was held at Jongchung Arena in Seoul, which is this huge dome-topped arena with stadium seats. It hosted concerts when it wasn't used for sports. The stadium was packed with South Koreans excited to watch their martial art on the world stage, but also a lot of American soldiers who were stationed in Korea and had scored free tickets. Sharon's first match was against Marsha King of Canada. Sharon won that match four to one. She was on her way to gold. If she could get past her semifinal match, she would fight for first place. Her next match was against Mandy de Jong from the Netherlands. Sharon fought in the middleweight category, which meant that on the morning of her fight, she had to weigh between 65 and 70 kilos, or between 143 and 154 pounds. You either made it or you didn't make it. And I went in early and stepped on the scale, and I was underweight. So I ran out real quick and grabbed some water or orange juice or whatever and drank it. And so when I officially weighed in, I made it like by 0.1. So I think I was too focused on that. Sharon was distracted at the Olympics. This could not happen. But she knows Mandy, and she tries to focus in on all the little details of what it's like to fight her. She's trying to remember how to beat her. The next bout in Taekwondo, women's middleweight semifinal. The American in the red, it is Sharon Jewell. She will fight against a very tough woman. Mandy's chest protector is blue. Sharon's is red. They step into the middle of the mat and bow to each other. The crowd is cheering behind them. And both fighters know that the winner will go on to fight for the gold medal. The loser will be stuck with bronze. The stakes are high, so they take their time. The match starts slowly. They're feeling each other out, throwing a punch here, a kick there. But Sharon comes out of the first round with a one-point lead on Mandy. Even though she's in the lead, it's not Sharon's best work. The match is still moving more slowly than she'd like. Her and Mandy bounce on the mat around each other, throwing an occasional punch and just faking each other out. Even the commentators notice. And then Mandy starts to light up. She starts throwing more kicks and punches and puts Sharon on the defensive. Sharon's moving backward and trying to deflect the punches. She can't get a shot of her own in. At one point, they're grappling. Their arms are all tangled up in each other. And I thought I heard the center referee say break, and I relaxed, and she scored a point. In a split second, she had lost a point. I should let the the referee jump in and pull us apart instead of me breaking apart. After three more minutes, the round two buzzer goes off. The judges deliberate and announce their decision. Two points awarded to Mandy, none to share. Now the score is one to two, and Sharon is losing. Sharon Jewell must be aware. She has seen the scoreboard that she has to fight better in this third and final round. She hopes to advance to the final. Cross knows the loser here. Sharon Jewell did not come to lose. 
Sharon was gold medal material, and she knew it. She had three minutes to prove it to everyone watching. Okay, here we see Sharon Jewell, a little bit of jumping around. The attack is initiated by Mandy Dijon. Sharon tries to jam it. Look how close they are trying to get at one another. There's a punch, couple of punches by Sharon. Now we'll see a flurry of roundhouse, both simultaneous. Nothing clean, both having difficulty tying each other up inside. I wanted the gold medal. I wanted to hear the national anthem, you know, playing for me. Sharon goes on the offensive and lets go this flurry of kicks. The two fight furiously until the ref pulls them apart. And then the buzzer goes off. The match is over. Sharon loses the match one to two. She would take home the bronze. For anyone else, a bronze medal at the Olympics would be a huge cause for celebration, but not for Sharon. At the medal ceremony, she climbed up onto the podium, the lowest of the three for her bronze medal, and listened as the South Korean national anthem played for the gold medalist, Kim Hyun Hee. I didn't have on my best face when I was getting my bronze medal. <laughs> so there was someone, a uh, military army guy up in the stands who saw me making this ugly face <laughs> on, the, on the metal stand and he yelled out, you know, come on Sharon, give us a smile. And she smiled. And I went and found him after that and thanked him for that. Sometimes you fight really hard for something. And even if you push as hard as you can, it doesn't turn out the way you'd hoped. Sharon fought for the chance to compete at the Olympics. And even though she didn't win gold, she kept her promise to herself to never come home from a competition without a medal. Still, she was frustrated that she didn't get the gold. But in the years since, she's accepted the way things shook out that day. She never went to the Olympics again. It was another 12 years before Taekwondo was officially added as an Olympic sport in 2000. By then, the sport had taken too much of a toll on Sharon's body and she had retired. But she hasn't stopped winning. I expect the best performance of myself all the time. And if I excel and do everything I'm supposed to do, then the result would be gold. For Sharon, winning doesn't always literally mean bringing home a gold medal. It means making a positive change on her community. Will I be victorious and perfect all the time? No, but if I think about it and I say, okay, I, I think I did the best that I could at that time, then yeah, I'm, I'm okay with that. I'm thinking, you know, with my dad in my head, be the first, be the best, do it better, or do it longer than anybody else. And just like you can't win a match without winning one point at a time, without focusing on details, you can't see big changes in the world without focusing on the small things around you. A few years back, I was involved with the Democratic Party and my city that I lived in had never had a person of color 
as chair of the committee. So I became the first African-American person to chair the city committee. Finding a way to win, one point at a time. There was not a international referee of, of African-American female descent. Um, so I, I pushed to um, go back and train to become the first African-American female from the United States to be an international referee. And now there's another one. So now there's two of us. This episode was produced by Alex Sujong Laughlin with production support from Mitchell Johnson, Jess Shane, Lacey Roberts, and Debbie Daughtry. Our executive editor is Sarah Nix. Executive producing by Greta Cohn, Josh Block, Jessica Grimshaw, and me, Kareem Maddox. Sound design by Alex Overington. Jasmine Flott is our music supervisor. This is a USG audio podcast in collaboration with Transmitter Media. For more information, go to our website, usgaudio.com. Thank you.